As Akbar lay ill and dying in 1605, Jahangir, then Prince Salim, nearly lost the throne to Khusro, his 17-year-old eldest son. Raja Singh, Kashwaha of Amber, and Mirza Aziz Kolka, whose daughter was married to the young prince, failed to persuade a majority of the nobles to support this coup. Instead, an opposition party, led by the Sayyids of Baraha, brought Salim safely to the dying emperor who, before he succumbed, invested the heir with a turban, robes, and Akbar's own dagger. After a week of mourning, Salim mounted the throne in Agra Fort, placed a turban on his own head, and took the title Nuruddin Jahangir Pacha Ghazi. A confrontation had occurred, but not a war for the succession. John F. Richards, The Mughal Empire Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we're continuing our discussion on the Mughal Empire. This is Episode 9-2, Akbar's Death. In 1600, Akbar the Great was 58 years old and the ruler of a magnificent empire. The Mughal Empire covered nearly half of India, most of Pakistan and Bangladesh, and even parts of Afghanistan. Akbar should have been enjoying the final years of his life and preparing to transfer power to the next generation. But in reality, Akbar was miserable. His attempts to expand into the Deccan had been stymied by Malik Ambar, a former African slave who was now the prime minister of the Ahmadagar Sultanate. But more importantly, Akbar's family life was in turmoil. One of his three sons had already died of alcohol poisoning. The other two were well on their way because they were both alcoholics and addicted to opium. And Akbar's eldest son, Salim, was in open rebellion against him. In this episode, we're going to discuss this turmoil between Akbar and his son Prince Salim and the repercussions it would have for the Mughal Empire. Before we start discussing Salim's rebellion, let's recap the actions that Prince Salim had taken. In 1599, Akbar led an army down into the Deccan. He left his son, Prince Salim, behind in Agra with orders to march on Rajputana, located in west-central India. Salim initially seemed to obey his father, but he suddenly turned back around, went back to Agra, raided the treasury, and then occupied Allahabad. Once he was in Allahabad, he dismissed his father's officials and began minting coins in his own name. Now, it's not exactly clear why Salim chose to rebel against his father, and as we mentioned in the previous episode, this wasn't a true rebellion because he only occupied Allahabad and none of the critical cities like Delhi, Lahore, or Agra. However, we can't ignore the fact that he did strike coins in his name, which was a sign of rebellion. However, it is possible that, that this rebellion was due to the years of acrimony and hostility that had built up between father and son. 
and he was likely also concerned that Akbar would appoint his grandson Khusro, who was also Selim's son, as his successor instead of Prince Selim himself. Akbar learned about Prince Selim's rebellion while he was on campaign in the Deccan. Once he learned what Prince Selim had done, Akbar quickly paid the remaining Deccan holdouts for the vassalage, which was basically nominal. Akbar paid the remaining holdouts in the Deccan for the vassalage, basically nominal acknowledgement of his rulership over them, and then headed back north to deal with his son. But instead of going straight to war with his son, Akbar sent his top advisor and one of his closest friends, Abul Fadl, to Allahabad to try to talk some sense into the prince. However, when Salim found out that Abul Fadl was on his way, he sent a man named Raja Birasting Dio to intercept him. Raja Birasting Dio was the warlord ruler of Orcha, which was about 190 miles east of Allahabad. Raja Birasting Dio's men ambushed Abul Fadl, dispersed his small entourage, then killed him and beheaded him. They sent Abul Fadl's head back to Prince Salim, who unceremoniously threw it into the toilet. Akbar was furious to learn that his son, his own son, had killed one of his top advisors and one of his closest friends. But despite his anger, Akbar still refused to go to war against his son. Finally, it was the women of the family who intervened to try to calm things down. First, Akbar's aunt, Gulbadan, and his mother, Hamida Banu, talked him into forgiving his son, Salim. The argument was basically that he had already lost one son with the death of Murad Mirza, and he didn't want to lose another one. So with that done, Akbar's wife, Salima Sultana Begum, went to Allahabad to try to talk some sense into her stepson, Prince Salim. As mentioned in the previous episode, Salima Sultana Begum was the widow of Akbar's former regent, Bayram Khan, and the mother of one of Akbar's top advisor, Kani Khanan Abdurrahim. While Salima Sultana Begum was successful, and in April 1603, Prince Salim arrived at Hamida Bano's house laden with presents for his father Akbar. He brought several lavish gifts, which included 12,000 pieces of gold and hundreds of elephants. Akbar accepted his son's apology and placed his turban on Salim's head, which was a sign that Prince Salim was still his successor. Now, even though they had reconciled, father and son still remained kind of distant. They rarely saw each other after this first meeting in Hamida Bano's house, and Salim wound up spending much of his time at Fatipur Sikri with the Jesuit priests. We mentioned Fatipur Sikri in the previous season. This was a capital city that Akbar built in 1571, ironically, in celebration of Prince Salim's birth. However, as Akbar drifted away from Islam, Fatipur Sikri became a center of general religious discourse and was not limited to Islam alone. Well, a few months after the reconciliation, Akbar wanted Salim to invade this large Rajput kingdom that covered much of what is the modern Indian state of Rajasthan. 
the local Hindu ruler of this Rajput kingdom refused to acknowledge Mughal authority and Akbar wanted to teach him a lesson. Mausoleum dillied and dallied and delayed and kept making excuses of why he couldn't leave for several months and finally, Akbar just got tired of him and just gave up and told Salim to return to Allahabad, which he did in November 1603. Over the next year, there were two important deaths that really changed the relationship between Emperor Akbar the Great and his son, Prince Salim. The first was the death of Akbar's youngest son, Daniel. Daniel, just like his two older brothers, Murad Mirza and Prince Salim himself, Daniel was an alcoholic. And just like his brother Murad, Daniel died of alcohol poisoning in May 1604. Prince Daniel was married to Kani Kanan Abdurrahim's daughter, and seeing the direction his son-in-law was going, Abdurrahim tried to get help for his son. He tried to cut off his access to alcohol, but this was the emperor's son. This was a prince. If Daniel wanted alcohol, he was going to get alcohol, and ultimately, it wound up killing him. However, back in Allahabad, Prince Salim was preparing this big party to celebrate the reconciliation between him and his father. And now that he was the last remaining son, Prince Salim did not care in the least about upsetting his father. He felt he had nothing to worry about. He was almost guaranteed to succeed his father now. Or so he thought. Now the thing about Prince Salim was that he could be very malicious and very cruel, especially, especially when he got drunk. When Prince Salim got intoxicated, when he got drunk, which he did very often, he would inflict severe penalties on his subjects in Allahabad for the most trivial of offenses. This behavior eventually leaked back to the royal court in Agra and many people started to get concerned. Akbar also heard about these atrocities in Allahabad and he began to get concerned that a madman might inherit his empire. Eventually, things got so bad that Akbar decided it was time to march on Allahabad and arrest his son. The only thing that stopped Akbar from doing so was the sudden death of his mother, Hamida Bano. Akbar was just starting to march on Allahabad. He was just preparing his army to go to Allahabad when he learned that his mother was very sick. So Akbar canceled his plans to march on Allahabad and went to Agra to visit his mother. His mother, Hamida Bano, died five days later in August 1604. This was just a few months after Akbar's son, Daniel, had died. Hamida Bano was 77 years old when she died, and Akbar went into mourning once again. He shaved his mustache, he shaved his head, and he shaved his eyebrows and fasted for several days. Hamida Bano was eventually buried in Delhi next to her husband and Akbar's father, Emperor Humayun. Now listen to this quote to understand the change in Akbar's attitude after his mother's death. Something seemed to have broken inside Akbar after his mother's death. He did not pursue his planned march on Allahabad. Instead, 
After a few listless days, during which he hardly appeared in public, he unexpectedly accorded a private audience to Mir Sadr Jahan, an orthodox mullah and one of Salim's confidants. The audience lasted for a full two hours. When it was over, the mullah, carrying secret instructions with him, hastily packed a few belongings and left for Allahabad. Nobody knows what was written in the instructions, but it is not hard to guess. One of them, most certainly, was an official letter written by the court scribe informing Salim of the passing of his grandmother and inviting him to court to share in his father's mourning. The second one, most probably, must have been a personal message to Salim warning him that if he did not immediately present himself at court, Akbar would officially disavow him and appoint Khusro as his successor. Dirk Collier, the great Mughals, and their India. After his mother's death, Akbar ordered Salim to join him in mourning in Agra. And Prince Salim, to his credit, though he was probably worried about the tone of the message from his father, he quickly obeyed. And when Prince Salim arrived in Agra, Akbar greeted him with all the appropriate royal honor and pomp and circumstance and extravagance that that would be due to a, to a prince returning home to see his father. But later that day, Akbar took his son Prince Salim into one of the inner apartments of the palace for a private talk. When they were alone, Akbar began slapping and cursing his son for his bad behavior. He ordered Salim to get help for his issues, for his drunkenness, for his drug addiction. And there was an implied threat that if Prince Salim didn't shape up, Khusro would be named his successor instead. Then, Akbar had Salim locked into a room with a doctor. Then, he cut off Salim's access to alcohol and opium. And then, he disbanded Salim's army. And finally, he arrested all of Salim's closest supporters. Now, when Abdurrahim tried to cut off his son-in-law's access, that is, Prince Daniel's access to alcohol and opium, he was unsuccessful. But Akbar was the emperor, and when Akbar said no alcohol to Prince Salim, the people obeyed, and no alcohol to Prince Salim. Now after this, Prince Salim seemed to sober up and shape up, and his behavior improved. And seeing this change in his son, Akbar pardoned Prince Salim. But instead of returning to Allahabad, Prince Salim chose to remain in Agra with his father and he fulfilled all of the required duties expected of him as a Mughal prince. Now he still drank alcohol and still used opium regularly, but at least he kept it under control. Nonetheless, despite these improvements by Prince Salim, the rivalry between him and his son Prince Khusro was dividing the royal court, it was dividing the palace, and even dividing their family. The fact is that even though Prince Salim's behavior seemed to have improved, a lot of people just didn't trust him. After all, he had rebelled against his father and had proven to be a malicious and cruel ruler in Allahabad. So there were powerful members of Akbar's royal court who supported Prince Khusro and wanted Prince Khusro to succeed his grandfather Akbar. 
One of these was Raja Man Singh, Akbar's chief of staff and one of his top generals. Coincidentally, or perhaps not so coincidentally, Raja Man Singh was also Prince Khusro's maternal uncle. Another supporter of Prince Khusro was Aziz Koka, who was the governor of Gujarat, but also Akbar's foster brother. Now, these two men worked to pull in other supporters, other people to support Prince Khusro over Prince Selim, and many people did join in, but it wasn't enough to turn the tide. But there were many people, in fact, many more people, who believed the line of succession should remain intact and go from Akbar to Prince Selim. There are also reports that Akbar openly considered naming Khusro as his successor. And Akbar had to acknowledge that due to his son's rebellion and due to his son's poor behavior in Allahabad, Prince Selim would always have his opponents. But Akbar also knew that if he confirmed, if he affirmed Khusro as his successor, it would almost certainly lead to civil war. Because as soon as he died, Prince Selim would demand his birthright and his supporters would rally around him and the civil war would be on. And the last thing Akbar wanted was for this empire that he had worked so hard to build to be torn apart by civil war. This rivalry between Prince Selim and his son, Prince Khusro, also led to the death of Selim's wife, Shah Begum, in May 1605. Shah Begum was so distressed, so emotionally hurt by this deadly rivalry between father and son that she tried to self-medicate by taking opium and accidentally overdosed. However, there are others, there are some reports that state that this was no accident and that she deliberately overdosed and committed suicide. Prince Selim was heartbroken by his wife's death and he fasted for four days after she died. Now, just to give you an example of this rivalry, of how contentious and, and divisive this rivalry was between Prince Selim and Prince Khusro, Akbar once, for some odd reason, organized an elephant fight between the two. He organized an elephant fight between his son, Prince Selim, and his grandson, Prince Khusro. Well, Selim's elephant wound up winning and defeated Khusro's elephant. But after the match was over, the men from each prince's camp, Selim and Khusro, got into an argument and started fighting. Now, Akbar was there. He saw both fights. He witnessed the fight between the elephants as well as the fight between the men. And he saw the potential of the civil war playing out in front of him as the two men and their supporters started to fight each other. Lakbar sent his other grandson, Murad, to settle things down, but the next day, the very next day, Akbar came down with the sickness that would ultimately kill him. There's lots of speculation that Akbar was poisoned, either by someone in Prince Selim's camp or maybe in Prince Khusro's camp, though that doesn't really make much sense. There's also speculation that Akbar may have accidentally poisoned himself, that, once again, doesn't make much sense. But all of this is just speculation. There's no proof for any of this. Akbar's sickness was a severe form of dysentery. 
His doctors provided him with some strong medicine to help stop the diarrhea, but when he took the medicine, it brought on a severe fever and severe stomach pains. This medicine also prevented Akbar from urinating. So when the doctors tried to reduce the medicine, the diarrhea came back with a vengeance. And it got so bad that Akbar was soon passing blood in his stool. And with Akbar dying, the royal palace was just abuzz with plots and intrigue. Rajaman Singh and Aziz Koka had renewed their efforts to try to drum up support for Prince Khusro over Prince Salim. But when that failed, when they were not able to get enough support for Prince Khusro, they went to Prince Salim and convinced him to make several promises. But two of these promises are very important. The first thing they wanted from him was his promise that if he became emperor, that when he became emperor, he would not seek revenge on those who had supported Prince Khusro. Now, this was very important because Rajiman Singh and Aziz Koka and the others who supported Prince Khusro had to worry, had to fear for their lives after Akbar died and Selim became emperor. Well, then they might as well throw in with Prince Khusro right now and take their chances with the civil war. The second thing they wanted from Prince Salim was his promise to protect and uphold Islam in the empire. Now, even though Rajaman Singh was a Hindu, many people were exhausted with Akbar's extreme views on religion, and they wanted some stability as far as religion was concerned. Well, Prince Salim agreed to both of these demands, and that settled down the the plotting that was going on as Akbar was dying. While Akbar was in his final days of life, the Jesuit priests who had been living and studying and working in Fatipur Sikri for so many years came to visit him. They had heard of Akbar's condition and they knew that he was dying and so they wanted to make a last-ditch effort to convince him to convert to Christianity. Well, Akbar politely listened to them and let them talk, but ultimately he refused to accept their offer. The Jesuit priests left, then they tried again a few days later, but this time they weren't even allowed to see him. On Akbar's final day of life, he summoned Prince Salim to his room. Throughout nearly a month of sickness, as Akbar was suffering, father and son had barely seen each other. Prince Salim, for his part, was probably afraid that if he met his father face-to-face during this period, that Akbar would inform him, would let him know that Khusra would be his successor. But that's not what happened. Akbar motioned for his son to put on the royal robes, put on the royal turban, and to take Humayun's sword. This was a final confirmation that Salim would succeed Akbar as the Mughal emperor. Akbar died on October 15th, 1605. Let's take a look at Akbar's legacy. Like everybody, Akbar had both good and bad qualities. Overall, however, he was an effective ruler, perhaps the most effective ruler ever in the Mughal empire. In his early years as emperor, Akbar did pronounce cruel punishments to some of his subjects. 
But over time, as he matured, he learned to control his anger and became more judicious, more just in his passing of judgments. And like his sons after him, Akbar consumed alcohol and opium regularly, but he did not allow it to affect his behavior. And Akbar, as the emperor, he did manage to expand the empire's borders and he put down several rebellions. And most importantly, he managed to pacify the Rajputs, the Afghans, and the Bengalis. But our primary concern is whether Akbar died as a Muslim or not. There is lots of disagreement on that. Let's first acknowledge that Akbar was a spiritual person from the very beginning. We saw this with his early commitment to Sufism and his building of Fatipur Sikri, both of which we discussed in the previous season. However, over time, Akbar began to grow disillusioned with the bickering between Muslims of different madhahib, or schools of thought. And for those of you who don't know, a school of thought in Sunni Islam is very similar to a denomination in Protestant Christianity. However, where there are hundreds of of denominations, there's only four schools of thought. Now, this disillusionment may have contributed to Akbar leaving Islam. However, he always had a natural curiosity about religion and matters of the spirit. Now, we know that the Hindu influence on Akbar's life led him to almost completely stop eating meat. And we also know that he had lengthy conversations and long discussions with the Jesuit priests in Fatipur Sikri but there's no evidence that Akbar converted to either Christianity nor Hinduism. Now, we can't ignore the fact that he literally created his own religion. He literally invented a new religion called Dini Lahi in this weird attempt to combine all religions into one. But it is possible that this was just as much a political move as it was a religious one. This may have been an attempt by Akbar to limit the power of the ulama class in the Mughal Empire. Ulama is plural for alim, and it means scholar. Now, people in the West or non-Muslims often say clerics, but that's not the term that Muslims generally use. We use either the word alim or scholar if we're speaking English. And these scholars or these clerics for you Westerners, they held a lot of power because they were the interpreters of Islam in the Mughal Empire. And this is repeated many times over across many different uh, Muslim empires, kingdoms, and even states even today. Now, we'll discuss the influence of the ulama class later on in the season, inshallah, when we're covering the reign of Emperor Aurangzeb. In addition to trying to limit the influence of the alim, of the ulama, within the Mughal Empire, Akbar may have passed many of these new rules in order to appease his Hindu wives and Hindu allies. Later on, Prince Salim would say that his father did pronounce his shahada on his deathbed, and there are also quotes from Christians who lived during that time who knew Akbar who stated that he died as a Muslim. In my personal opinion, and Allah knows best, I believe that he was, at best, an unorthodox Muslim. And Allah knows best. Prince Salim became the emperor of the Mughal Empire on October 24, 1605, at the age of 36. 
He took on the imperial name Nuruddin Jahangir, which means light of religion, conqueror of the world. Emperor Jahangir, we're not going to call him Prince Salim anymore. Emperor Jahangir kept his promise not to seek revenge or take any action against those who had supported his son Khusrow. In fact, Emperor Jahangir retained most of the advisors and government officials that had served his father. In fact, he appointed Abu Fadl's son to a high position within the army, and perhaps this was an attempt to reconcile for killing Abu Fadl. Ironically, he also gave a hefty reward to Raja Singh Dio, the man who had actually killed Abu Fadl. Another important move by Emperor Jahangir was the appointment of a man named Giyaz Beg to the office of Diwan. As we mentioned before, the Diwan was the Ministry of Finance for the Mughal Empire. Now this man, Giyaz Beg, was a relatively minor Persian bureaucrat who had served during the days of Akbar's rule. But we'll see that he plays a very important role in the Mughal Empire, inshallah. But that discussion is for the next episode. Even though Emperor Jahangir was willing to overlook and forgive his opponent's actions, he was not a fool. He did take steps to minimize their power. For instance, one of the most important things was that he kept his son, Prince Khusro, by his side in Agra. Now, Kusro, who was about 18 years old at this time, was essentially a prisoner of his father, even though his prison was a palace. He was still a prisoner. The next move he did was to appoint Raja Man Singh, who was one of Kusro's primary supporters. Emperor Jahangir appointed him to be the governor of Bengal, which was hundreds of miles away. So that kept those two from having too many interactions. One of the more important moves that Jahangir made was the Dastarul Amal. This was a new legal code and it meant rules of conduct. These were 12 laws that were meant to promote public welfare. Let's go through them one by one. The first law, Jahangir reduced the taxes that could be levied by the local Jagadars. Remember the Jagadar was a type of feudal lord in India. We discussed him in the previous episode. Number two, he ordered the construction of new wells, houses, mosques, and other structures that would increase the population along major highways. Number three, he banned the opening of merchandise while in transit without the owner's approval. Number four, Jahangir abolished the practice of the empire taking over dead officials' estates. This is again something we discussed in the previous episode. There had been a law during Akbar's time that when a Mughal official or when a Mughal noble died, his lands would revert back to imperial control. The purpose of this rule was to ensure that land was available for new officials and also to promote meritocracy. However, the downside was that this practice left the dead official's family destitute and in difficult financial situations. Number five, he prohibited the manufacture and distribution of alcoholic drinks and other drugs. However, it goes without saying that Emperor Jahangir continued to drink alcohol and use opium as much as he wanted. Number six, he prohibited Jagadars and other officials from seizing the land of ordinary people. Number seven, 
Jahangir ordered the construction of hospitals and clinics throughout the empire. Number eight, he prohibited the stationing of soldiers in private homes, which is very similar to the U.S. Bill of Rights. Number nine, he prohibited amputations, blindings, and cutting off noses and ears as punishments. Ironically, however, Jahangir would do the same to his own family members, as we'll see in the future episode, inshallah. Number 10, Jahangir prohibited slaughtering animals on Thursdays and Sundays. Now, I'm not sure of the practical purpose behind this law, but I've heard that Pakistan continued to practice this up until the early 1990s. Number 11, Jahangir prohibited marriage within clans. And finally, number 12, he abolished the practice of castrating boys to serve in private harems. Now, let's see how our friends the English were doing around this time. Now, England in the late 1500s was not really doing too well. There were some successes, of course. Sir Francis Drake, who was an English privateer, he circumnavigated the earth in 1580. He attacked and plundered Spanish and Portuguese ships, which brought a whole bunch of wealth to the English. And he also helped to repel the Spanish Armada's naval invasion of England in 1588. But otherwise, the English had failed to establish many overseas trading links. But they were well behind the Portuguese and the Dutch who had already had a strong presence in Asia. So far, England had failed at building a global empire. Roanoke Colony, which was established in 1585 in North America in the modern state of North Carolina, had mysteriously been destroyed by 1590. Also in 1590, Sir James Lancaster, another English privateer, attempted to sail to India by going around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. Along this way, however, most of his men died from scurvy. Now on the plus side, the English did learn the importance of lemon juice and they would begin to use it on future voyages. In addition to most of his men dying from scurvy, James Lancaster was marooned after a terrible cyclone, and he finally made it back to England in 1594. You've heard me use the word privateer twice. The difference between a privateer and a pirate is very simple. If they work for you, they're a privateer. If they work for somebody else or for themselves, they're pirates. Simple as that. Well, the EIC's first overseas trip came in early 1601. We discussed in a previous episode how Queen Elizabeth finally approved the EIC's royal charter. Sir James Lancaster led a fleet of EIC ships out of England in early 1601. They finally reached Aceh in what is now modern Indonesia in June 1602. They returned to London in June 1603, laden down with a bunch of goods from Indonesia. Now, much of these goods had not necessarily been traded for. Instead, they had been plundered from Portuguese ships. However, it was still a successful and profitable journey for the EIC. Now, listen to this quote. It would be the first of 15 more IC expeditions that would set out over the next 15 years. But the truth was that this was small fry compared with what the Dutch were already achieving on the other side of the channel. 
For in March 1602, while Lancaster was still in the Moluccas, the different Dutch East India companies had all agreed to amalgamate and the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, Verenigde Ostindische Compagnie, had received its state monopoly to trade with the East. When the Amsterdam accountants had totted up all these subscriptions, it was found that the VOC had raised almost 10 times the capital base of the English EIC and was immediately in a position to offer investors a 3,600% dividend. William Dalrymple, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company we can see that despite the EIC's successful trip to Indonesia, they were still well behind the Dutch. Now, as far as the EIC's first foray into India, that was a little bit more murky. John Mildenhall was a British adventurer who had been given the responsibility of selling the EIC's goods and wares in Arabia and India. This was an overland journey and not a naval one. However, instead of selling the EIC's goods, John Mildenhall ran off with them to Persia to do what he wanted to do with them. The EIC sent two men named Richard Steele and Richard Newman to track Mildenhall down and bring him back to England to justice. They eventually captured him in Persia, but the two men who had been sent to arrest him had a falling out. In a surprising plot twist, one of the men, Richard Newman, teamed up with the fugitive John Mildenhall and they then traveled on to India. They arrived in Agra in 1603 and even met with Emperor Akbar. However, since they were not there in any official capacity, not much came of this meeting, but it was the first business trip between the EIC or someone related to the EIC and the Mughal Empire. That's going to do it for this episode. In the next episode, we'll discuss Jahangir's war against his own son. We'll also talk about Jahangir's remarkable wife. And we will discuss the Mughals' continued obsession with conquering the Deccan. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Saroj for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.
Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Afghanistan season one presented by Islamic History Exclusive. This season, we are discussing the Soviet Afghan War. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. A 1978 coup overthrows the rule of Dawood Khan, bringing a communist government to Afghanistan. Nor Taraki the leader of this new government tries to pass communist policies which lead to a rebellion. Nortaraki is overthrown by his prime minister, Hafizullah Amin, but the rebellion continues to spread. Desperate to restore order, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan, kills Hafizullah Amin, and installs Babra Karmal as president. And with that, Let's discuss the many events surrounding the USSR's decision to invade Afghanistan. Let's discuss a little bit about the growth of communism in Afghanistan. We're still laying some groundwork before we get into the actual fighting that took place in Afghanistan. That's probably going to start in the next episode, inshallah. But there's still a little bit of groundwork that I want to lay down so that we understand the situation surrounding Afghanistan when the Soviets invaded in 1979. In the first episode of this series, we discuss Afghanistan's long history with Russia, but we only briefly glossed over it. So now let's discuss some of the details of this history. As we all know, in 1947, Britain pulled out of uh, India. The partitioning of India took place, leading to the creation of two new nations, India and Pakistan. Pakistan shared a border and still shares a border with Afghanistan, and these two countries previously disputed over this border. This is the reason for these disputes. is mostly due to the Pashtun population's that live between these two countries, Afghanistan and Pakistan. The Pashtuns, as we mentioned in the previous episode, are a majority in Afghanistan, but they are a minority in Pakistan. Pashtuns make up roughly 40% of the population in Afghanistan, at least in 1979 they did. But in Pakistan, Pashtuns are only somewhere between 15 to 18%. So these disputes between Pakistan and Afghanistan over this border actually led to some clashes, particularly in the 1950s. And these clashes between these two nations prompted Pakistan to close its border with Afghanistan. Afghanistan, however, being a landlocked country, was really hurt by this move from Pakistan. So when Pakistan closed its border uh, with Afghanistan back in the 1950s, Afghanistan's economy suffered because it really depended on this border crossing to export its fruits through Pakistan and on into India. 
To make matters even worse for Afghanistan, during the 1950s, the United States was trying to contain the Soviet Union in Asia and prevent the Soviet Union from spreading its influence too far. The United States helped its allies in Asia, particularly the nations of Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Pakistan, to create a military alliance called CENTO, C-E-N-T-O. The United States did not necessarily join this alliance itself, but it was a, a benefactor of this alliance. It encouraged this alliance, which, which was primarily focused on preventing a Soviet invasion of Asia. The United States sent arms to all of these nations. However, it refused to include Afghanistan in this alliance, and it refused to send aid to Afghanistan And some of the reason for this was because of Afghanistan's conflict, perhaps not with Pakistan, but definitely with Iran. Iran was an even stronger ally with the United States than Pakistan was. And so the United States wanted to prevent any friction with its ally, Iran. Remember, this was during the days of the Shah before the revolution in 1979 also. So the United States wanted to stay on the good side with Iran, and so it refused to send any weapons to Afghanistan. The United States probably thought that Afghanistan was an afterthought. It wasn't really all that important in the area. Iran and Pakistan were the big players, and they wanted to make sure that it had those two nations on its side. 